This audio program is brought to you courtesy of Audible.com. Audible. Audio that speaks to you wherever you are. Doctor Who, the story of Martha. The Frozen Wastes by Robert Shearman, read by Freema Adjaman. When Martha Jones was four years old, she broke her arm. She'd been playing in the park with her brother, riding the swings a little too enthusiastically. She flew off the seat, and for one moment, she was actually airborne. It could only have been a split second, and Martha loved it. She was going up and up like an astronaut. And then there was gravity, and the ground, and dirt, and a sharp crack. It's not my fault, said Leo. She kept asking me to push her harder. And then he burst into tears. Martha supposed she really ought to be crying too. After all, she was the one who was actually in pain. But she was being driven to hospital. It was an adventure, and the whole thing was rather too exciting for tears. Nothing to worry about, said the doctor. It's a clean break. Look. And he showed the Jones family the x-rays. Martha asked if that was really her arm. It looked so strange and ghostly. That's what it's like underneath, explained the doctor, and smiled at her. Underneath. It was like a secret world, something which had been hidden from her until that moment. The doctor told her the arm would have to be put in a cast for a while, just to give the bones time to knit back together. You mean asked Martha, a little breathless, that my arm is going to fix itself. The doctor nodded. You'll be right as rain, he told her. You're such a brave little girl. Martha wanted to tell him that it wasn't bravery at all. It was curiosity. But the doctor had been so nice she didn't want to seem rude. I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up, Martha told her parents that evening over dinner. They smiled and nodded and didn't pay that much attention. They were just relieved her ordeal hadn't upset her too much. But she didn't change her mind. For Christmas that year, she was given a toy stethoscope. It came in a plastic box, and on the cover there was a picture of a little boy trying very hard to look medical. Martha was disappointed that the stethoscope didn't actually work. The nurse outfit her dad gave her was much more practical and had a girl on the box instead, but Martha found that far less interesting. And books, so many books, all about how the body worked, what the heart did, the lungs, the blood cells. By the time she was a teenager and all her school friends had pictures of George Michael on their bedroom walls, Martha instead displayed posters of the human skeleton, each bone arrowed and named. Her mother thought it was all a bit grisly, but it was at least better than what Leo was hanging in his room. He was going through an Iron Maiden phase. And each night, with the skeleton gazing down at her, surrounded by increasingly complex books about anatomy, Martha would dream. She would dream about the doctor she would become.
No two children in the world dream the same dream. Adults do. They get lost in nightmares about mortgages and internet shopping and having to make speeches in public. But children don't yet believe the lie that there are limits to the imagination, and so when they close their eyes at night, there are as many adventures as there are children thinking them. Take the case of Pierre Bruyere, for example. In 1868, as a six-year-old boy living in a suburb of Paris, he began to dream of white. And once he'd started, he never stopped. Each time he fell asleep, the white would be there waiting for him. He didn't know this was unusual, only that it was sometimes so bright and unforgiving that he'd wake with a headache. His parents weren't complex people; they had a little bakery. All they ever dreamed of was croissants and buns. Maybe you are colour blind or something," said his father. "Maybe you are just seeing black as white. I don't know." Pierre told him that it wasn't just white. It was different shades sometimes, and once in a while it had cracks in it. The father had nothing to say to that. Instead, he took him to a doctor. The doctor had heard there was some talk on the continent, in places where doctors could afford to worry about such things, that the dreams of a patient might have significance. But this doctor was a gruff sort of man, and told Pierre that dreams were just dreams, and that there was nothing to be done about them. They'll go away, he said, or they won't. And Pierre told him he didn't want them to go away. I like the white, he whispered in confidence. It's mysterious. When Pierre was fifteen, an exhibition came to Paris, and his family made a rare journey into the city to see it. Expeditions into the Arctic had been inconclusive at best. The North Pole had never been reached, and yet it still fascinated people. It seemed to Monsieur Bruyère that the entire population of France had crowded into the hall to see the photographs. It looks very cold," said Pierre's mother rather obviously. "Not very nice at all." Pierre looked from picture to picture at the desolation, at the swathes of snow and ice, relieved every now and then by glimpses of the ocean breaking through the cracks between. He could hardly take his eyes off them. And only moved along when an impatient crowd pushed him aside. That's what I've been dreaming," he told his parents. "You've been dreaming of these pictures?" "Not the pictures," said Pierre irritably. "The place. That's what I see when I close my eyes. I'm going to be an Arctic explorer." His mother pointed out gently that Arctic exploration was a dangerous career move. Wouldn't he be better off baking bread instead? But Pierre was adamant. As the years went by, it seemed to Pierre that everyone in the world was trying to make it to the North Pole before him. They'd make attempts by boats, which sank; by foot, which frostbit; they'd even come up with newfangled inventions called skis. And every time they failed, Pierre couldn't help but feel relieved. The conquest of the pole was to be his achievement. He knew it was what he was born for. He felt terribly guilty for a while whenever he delighted in the news of another disaster in the Arctic, of the men who'd perished, and then he forgot to feel guilt any more. He had no room in his brain for such stuff. He had his own schemes to work on. In 1890, he at last addressed a party at the International Geographical Congress in London. He wasn't used to talking in public. He'd been a boy who'd cut himself off from friends, and as a result. 
He couldn't help but shake as he spoke to the committee. Uh, balloon, he said. I'm going to conquer the North Pole by balloon. The room was stuffy and the speakers tedious. In spite of her best efforts, Martha kept dozing off. The doctor nudged her. This is what we came for, he whispered. They don't even have penguins in the Arctic, said the doctor. There was a crowd to see them off and stalls for the tourists, selling all kinds of merchandise. There was always a buzz about attempts on the North Pole, and the papers in London spoke of the Arctic season the same way they chatter about the Henley Regatta. But there was even greater excitement about Bruyere's balloon. Ships are all very well and good and have an undeniable majesty about them. But there's nothing as pretty as a balloon, straining against the ropes and the wind for its launch, looking for all the world like an enormous children's toy. It's huge, Martha said to the doctor when she first saw it. A ball of pongee silk, the lightest, most resilient material available. It towered above her. Now, as she stood in the basket, it didn't seem quite so big. And suddenly they were free. The balloon rose into the air, and it didn't feel to Martha as if they were the ones moving at all. Instead, the ground was sucked away from beneath her, the banners wishing them safe voyage, the people waving and cheering, holding up their flags and their rubber icebergs, and even, yes, their clockwork penguins. Martha couldn't believe the doctor was still going on about them. Penguins is the Antarctic, said the doctor. They've got the wrong pole. Listen, the doctor had said to Martha. And so she listened. Pierre Briere spoke to the Geographical Congress, and as he warmed to his subject, he forgot to be nervous. He explained how a balloon could cover in a few days distances it would take them months with their dogs and sleds. He wasn't wringing his hands any longer. Now he was punching the air with his fist every time he made a point. He sounds convincing enough, Martha had said, a little cautiously. Oh, he's brilliant, said the doctor. You've got to be impressed by the sheer ingenuity of it all. All these people trying to explore the Arctic, this man comes at the problem sideways on. I love sideways on. There's really only one problem. Well, one big problem. Lots of little problems. There are tons of those, of course. What are the little problems? Right, well, for a start, you can't steer a balloon. I mean, you can do a bit with drag ropes, drop them over the side, you get pulled in that direction. But against the Arctic winds? I don't think so, do you? Then there's the gas. At that temperature, you're at the mercy of the sun. When the sun shines, the hydrogen expands, the balloon rises. When it hits a cloud, uh-oh, down you go. And then there's the balloon itself. Because that's made up of thousands and thousands of silk sheets, all stitched together. Each of the little stitch holes, that's something the gas can leak through, and it will. They don't sound like little problems. Nah, said the doctor. They're pretty small, really. Your tried and tested methods, Pierre went on, they're failed. How many more men will you allow to die? Whereas in a balloon... All that is being risked is my life. Mine and the two crew members I shall need. It's the cheapest, safest means to victory. If I die, then he shrugged. 
At least it won't be for lack of effort. At least I won't spend my days in a baker shop, denying my dreams. There was silence to that. Mars took advantage of it to whisper to the doctor. Okay, so what's the big problem? Well, said the doctor, he fails. April eighteen ninety, he takes off with his crew. He's never heard of again. But doctor, said Martha, it's June eighteen ninety. Yeah, said the doctor. Odd, isn't it? We're looking at a dead man. He just doesn't seem to know it. And for a dead man, Pierre Briere seemed very animated. Gentlemen, you misunderstand me," he said at last in exasperation. "I am not asking your permission. I am stating my intent. I have already secured funds. I have already found my crew, and we are setting off for the pole as soon as it is propitious. Good day." Martha looked at the doctor. He gave her a grin. "Yeah," he said. "I know. I know." But you've got to admire sideways. Afterwards, the doctor introduced Martha to Pierre. He shook her hand formally. I hope we have no need of your medical skills, he told her solemnly. But we have no idea what new illnesses might be waiting for us in such an alien place. Martha was surprised he didn't comment upon her being a woman. He tutted with impatience. It is of no interest whatsoever. If you can do your job, that is enough. We are going to the North Pole, Doctor Jones. I do trust that we will find there more remarkable causes for comment than your gender or the colour of your skin. I don't like him," Martha said to the doctor. "Not the warmest of individuals," agreed the doctor. "Still, I suppose that makes sense where we're going." Bruyere hadn't spoken since the balloon had taken off. He spent the last three hours making entries in his journal. It would be the record of all their discoveries. It was more important, he explained, than any single member of the crew. Their bodies might fail on their arduous expedition, but so long as it was properly logged, they would live forever. At last, he laid down his pen. It's time we ate, he said. Open flames weren't allowed in the basket, not with inflammable hydrogen mere feet above. Instead, Bruyere had dangled a little stove some thirty feet below the basket. Which could be ignited or doused by remote control. There was even a mirror set at an angle, so that if you peered over the side, you could see whether the eggs were done yet. I told you," said the doctor. "Brilliant." Bruyere served up their meals, and they tucked in. "Gentlemen," said Pierre at last, "we are the lucky ones. I am quite certain that the North Pole will be discovered, with or without our efforts." In ten years, maybe every single place on Earth will have been mapped. There'll be no need for explorers any more, and man will turn to the skies and stare at the planets if they want to see anything new. We are privileged. We have been born at the right time. We can still be the first. Martha had never seen Pierre smile before, but he suddenly did, and it took years off him, even with his beard, his greying hair. He looked for all the world like a little boy on Christmas morning. We are on our way, he told them, and hugged them both. Looking back, Martha thought that was the best moment of the expedition—the time that they came together as a team. They sang songs, 
The doctor, fumbling his way through a Beatles classic, Pierre, something very gentle in French that the TARDIS had the sensitivity not to translate. They all peered over the side of the balloon at the sea of ice beneath them. Martha, marvelling at how the wind would blow wisps of snow across the surface and make it look like something fluid. Pierre checked his sextant and announced that in twelve hours' travel they had come further than Nansen's expedition had managed in two whole months. And they all cheered at that. And the doctor poured them all coffee, and they toasted each other. Pierre sucked on his pipe. I can't light it, he said, but I can pretend all the same. They set up a sleep rotor. It was Martha's turn first. She didn't think she'd be able to get even a wink with the excitement and the brightness of the snow, but she propped herself up against the side of the basket anyway, closed her eyes, and didn't even remember nodding off. And Martha dreamed that she was going to be a doctor. That was what she wanted most in the world. And no one could stop her, not the girls in the playground, not Leo with his teasing. She'd look at that poster of the human skeleton on her bedroom wall before she turned the lights out. She'd study it so hard that every night she'd dream the names of bones. Hang on, thought Martha to herself. I don't need to dream this anymore. I am a doctor. But she looked down at her hands, and they were so very small. And she was so very young. Those ambitions of hers were a world away. How would she ever achieve them? And then, suddenly, she was at her exam. The teacher asking her questions and grading her responses. I'm not old enough for this yet, said Martha. And the examiner just smiled. Tell me all about the bones, Martha. Tell me your hopes and dreams. So she did. Patella, tibia, fibula, more, said the teacher. Clavicle, scapula, humerus. And the teacher put back her head and purred, which Martha thought was a very odd thing for a teacher to do. Ulna, radius. It's so cold out here, Martha, and I must feast to keep warm. Sacrum, coccyx. And the teacher tilted her head towards her, opened her eyes wide, and Martha could see they were just shards of ice, glacial like the sea beneath the balloon. The balloon. The doctor was shaking her. Martha, wake up! We've got a problem. And he didn't pause. He was back to a whirlwind of activity, racing around the basket, grabbing hold of whatever he could, throwing it over the side. Martha squinted through the brightness of the sun and saw that Pierre was doing the same thing. We're still losing height," cried Pierre. Martha struggled to her feet, but it was difficult to find her balance. She could feel now that the balloon was giving way beneath her. She was being pulled downwards fast. She scrabbled about. Her hands found the saucepan in which they'd boiled the water for coffee. As she pitched it overboard, she was able to see the ground rushing up to meet them. It was impossible to say how close it was. The vast shadow of the balloon stretched out before them like a black smudge on the snow. What happened? She shouted, "We have jettisoned all the inessentials." Pierre called out over the wind of their descent, "What do we do now?" "Lose the essentials," said the doctor. He took hold of a food hamper, strained under the weight. "Help me!" he cried. And Martha took the other side. Together they staggered with it to the edge of the basket, so unsteady on their feet it looked like they were performing a bizarre dance. And then, "Now!" said the doctor, and with a heave. 
They threw it over. Not our food! Pierre looked ashen. No! He grabbed hold of the second hamper, pulling it away from the doctor. Do you feel that? said the doctor. Do you feel what's happening? And Martha could see what he meant. The rate of descent had slowed. It wants us to get rid of our food. The only force here is gravity. Not that force. The force that's keeping us aloft. We should have crashed on the ice already. The bottom of the basket hit a spike of ice, chipping snow over the mall. The force knocked them off their feet. The balloon bounced upwards off the impact. Next time we'll tip over, said the doctor. We've got no choice. And they took the remaining hampers, all three of them, and heaved them away. In that instant, the balloon stopped struggling, as if they'd just flicked a switch and turned the crisis off. Oh, the balloon seemed to say, you want me to go up? Nothing to it. And with a nonchalance that almost made Martha laugh, calmly, lazily, it began to rise once more into the air. They gained height quickly. Martha watched all the provisions dwindle to the size of ants against the snow, then disappear completely. We're alive, she said. It was obvious, but it needed to be said. Whatever this thing is, said the doctor. It wants us entirely at its mercy. He stared at the polar wastes ahead of them. One day, Pierre looked up from his sextant, cleared his throat formally, and announced that he thought they must nearly be there. Below us, gentlemen, is the North Pole. Martha couldn't help herself. She looked over the side of the basket. It was a pointless thing to do, and she knew it was pointless. Nothing but white below them, white above them. Nothing but white all around. Nothing but white for weeks. What do you think, Doctor? asked Pierre. But the Doctor hadn't spoken for a long time. At first, the Doctor had been characteristically exuberant. We have to stay alive, he told them. That's what matters. Gather everything which we can throw overboard just in case we need ballast again. Martha even thought he was enjoying himself as he arranged the heaviest items around the perimeter for easy access. Sledges, scientific instruments. We've got to be prepared to junk the lot, said the doctor. He took hold of Pierre's journal, but the explorer snatched it back. Not that, said Pierre, and for a moment it looked as if the doctor would argue. But then he nodded. Let go. No, he agreed. All right, not that. They made sure they kept warm and took regular turns to sleep and keep watch. Not that there was anything to watch. After a few hours, Martha found the stark blankness all around her almost blinding. There was no food, of course, and the doctor told them they'd have to cope as best they could. That day, Martha hadn't felt hungry anyway. She supposed she was too scared. And after a couple more days, she stopped questioning it. And by the end of that first week, she'd even forgotten she should be hungry. Once in a while, her thoughts would drift, and she'd wonder about it. Wasn't there something she should be doing with food? She'd think dreamily. Shouldn't she be eating it? Something like that. Then, with a jolt, she'd realise she should be starving. No, really, literally starving. And then she'd feel dozy again. And the voice in her head would tell her not to worry about it, 
Okay, she'd tell the voice, and give in to sleep. I'm sure if anything were wrong, the doctor would take care of it. Sometimes Martha's dreams would be peaceful. She wouldn't remember what they'd been when she woke up, but they'd been all hers and nobody else's. But more often than not, they'd get interrupted by that woman examiner. Never mind that holiday in Bermuda, she'd say. Never mind that Christmas when you were seven. Never mind that date with Leonardo DiCaprio. Tell me about the bones, Martha. It's so very cold. I must feast. Tell me all about the bones and why you love them so much. When they'd run out of songs, the crew began to share dreams. Martha told the doctor and Pierre how she had always wanted to study medicine, and Pierre told them his dreams of white. The doctor hadn't paid much attention to anything in weeks. Martha had been getting very worried, but at this he showed a sudden interest. Nothing but white, really. But out here, said Pierre, amongst the white, sometimes I now dream of other things. What other things? Just other things, Pierre would shrug. Just not white, as if I've been set free. It's a relief. Pierre wouldn't say much any more either. He liked to sleep as long as possible. He'd do so with a grin across his face and look so at peace that Martha would feel envious. And when he was awake, he'd be scribbling in his journal. Martha couldn't see why. Nothing was happening for him to write about, but he'd write anyway, one arm hiding it from view, as if he didn't want anyone to copy his homework. What do you dream of, Doctor? asked Martha. I don't dream, he said shortly. But one time, when Pierre was asleep, he told Martha. On old maps, you'll find the words, Here be dragons. It doesn't mean there really were dragons, of course, only that there were places no one had ever been. They didn't know what they'd find. There could be anything. Explorers like Pierre, they don't think that's good enough. They keep pushing against the limits of what they know. They refuse to ever sit back and say, that's enough. They won't give in to the dragons, but, he said, what if, when you get out there, into the unknown... You find there are dragons waiting, after all. One day, Pierre looked up from his sextant and said they must nearly be there. Below us, gentlemen, is the North Pole. What do you think, Doctor? But the Doctor just looked at him grimly. How can you tell? asked Martha. We can't even see land. We have been travelling at a steady rate of twenty knots these past two months. Always on the same course, the winds have been constant. Wait a moment, said Martha. These past months. How long do you think we've been travelling for? Pierre frowned. Four? Maybe five months? What is your estimate? Martha felt like laughing. That's ridiculous. It can't be more than a fortnight. What do you think, Doctor? Asked Pierre again. Martha looked at her old friend. 
Yes, Doctor, how long have we been doing this? The Doctor licked his lips, spoke quietly. It's been years. Years and years, I lost count. So many. I tried to shield you from the worst of it. Took so much concentration. I'm sorry. His companions looked dumbly at him. Entire lifetimes crouching here, in a basket, and yet, he said, and took out his sonic screwdriver. Martha had never been so pleased to see something so safe, so familiar. The doctor pointed it over the side of the balloon, aimed downwards. The blue light pierced through the white. It lost none of its intensity as it burned ever downwards, illuminating the way. And hundreds of feet below them, shapes to make out. Yes! Martha could see the snow and the ice and the hampers of food they had jettisoned. And yet, continued the doctor, it's been no time at all. They're not even frozen over, said Pierre, hushed. They'd have frozen over in minutes. He looked up at the doctor and his face was suddenly livid and Martha thought he might actually hit him. It's impossible! That's the North Pole below us! It has to be! I shall write as much in my journal! Your journal is nothing but lies. But Pierre stomped over to the book anyway, sat down and picked up his pen. What is it, Doctor? asked Martha. It distorts time, said the Doctor, running the same seconds back over and over. We're literally frozen in them. The perfect larder where the meat stays fresh and never runs out. Pierre couldn't speak. He tried, but the words just didn't come out, his mouth opening and closing like a goldfish. So he had to pass his journal to the doctor dumbly. The doctor looked inside. All the pages were filled. They'd been filled many times over. One diary entry over another, over another, until all the words were illegible, a mess of black ink. I don't think this is your first expedition to the North Pole, said the doctor. He handed the journal back to Pierre, who dropped it listlessly to the floor. Let's find out. He raised the sonic screwdriver high, and as he pushed down just once, there was the smallest of beeps, and the giant gas balloon above them popped open. There was a whoosh of hydrogen into the Arctic sky, so dense that Martha could actually see it. And then the silk covers that had kept them afloat fell away and were lost in the white. Martha steeled herself for the fall, the inevitable crash upon the ice below. But ridiculously, they just hung there in mid-air. She looked down, but the ground just sat there, out of reach, stubbornly refusing to obey the laws of physics. And then she looked up. She'd not been able to look upwards for so long. The balloon had been her sky. It had blocked out everything else above them. And now she could do nothing but gawp. The doctor and Pierre were already doing the same. They were not alone. Balloons. At first, Martha thought there was a dozen of them. And that was impossible enough. 
But then she saw there was a layer above that, and the layers kept going on and on. There were hundreds of balloons, maybe thousands, a whole flotilla of them blotting out the sky. And that wasn't the strangest thing of all. They are my balloon," said Pierre. "The same insignia, the, the same design." And there he stopped, because he didn't dare carry on. He knew if he said it aloud, his mind might crack. But the same Pierre too, standing at the edge of each basket, flanked always by two different crew members. What did I do? He heard himself ask. What's been done to you? Corrected the doctor. It's caught you in a loop. Each time you set out with companions, and each time it sends you back to the beginning for new ones. The same polar expedition over and over, always doomed to failure. But why? Asked Martha. What possible reason could it have to do that? All it can do is eat, said the doctor. That's all. And so it's everything humanity isn't, because you all have aspirations, desires, the urge to reach out and be something greater than you are, and that's what it feeds on: human ambition, the very thing that makes you think or feel. It's obscene. He turned to Pierre. It's reached into your very dreams, made you want to be an explorer, made you hunger to come here again and again. Pierre's face was in agony. <sighs> Are you saying that all that desire I had to explore, to add to the sum of human knowledge, it wasn't even mine in the first place? The doctor said nothing, because he had no answer to give. Pierre wobbled on his feet. He looked as if he might faint. He grabbed hold of the edge of the basket to steady himself, and then he gripped it harder. His knuckles flared, and he shouted into the frozen wastes. I wanted to be somebody special. The ice bit at his face and made his eyes water. Come to me, he said. Come to me right now and tell me I am not to my face. The Pierre Bruyere in the balloon above tilted its head in what looked like consideration. Then it shrugged. It sat itself upon the edge of the basket and, swinging its legs over the side, lowered itself down. Soon it was hanging there, only by its fingernails, some nine meters above the real Pierre Bruyere's head. It looked downwards, seemed to tut in irritation to see how far it still had to go, and then the fingernails grew. They stretched out like elastic. Only it wasn't elastic; it was ice. They'd become ten long icicles, and Pierre was dropping gently into the basket beside them. How much of me is really me? One Pierre asked the other bravely. Could I ever have been a great man at all? His counterpart was speckled with frost, like icing sugar. His hair frozen to his head. His teeth chattering. His eyes hard flint. I am so cold, this Pierre said, almost apologetically, and with something like tenderness, brought his hands up. To the other's cheeks, and drained the life out of him. My turn, I think," said the doctor. And the Pierre Bruyere monster turned away from the frozen corpse he had created, 
I felt you buzzing away around my dreams. You want to know what's inside you. You want to know my hopes and desires, where I've explored. He stepped closer. The ice cold of Pierre's face didn't even change expression. I've navigated the Northwest Passage, stepped on the moon, been to Mars, Venus, planets you need three tongues to pronounce. I've sipped tea on the rim of burning constellations that were lost millennia ago. And I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. So if you want a feast, you better be hungry. And he didn't wait. He grabbed hold of Pierre's hands, drove them into his cheeks, and held tight. The white darkened, turned red, turned purple like a bruise. Can you feel it? gasped the doctor. All those dreams you'll never know, you'll never understand. And he cried out, Martha, I made a mistake. I thought I could weaken it, could fill it to bursting, but it's so cold. It's so hungry. And Martha didn't hesitate. She put her own hands upon the doctor's cheeks too. She felt how cold they were, and she was so warm against them, and she pushed harder until she could feel she'd reached the doctor's warmth too. She knew it must be deep inside somewhere. And I've been to the moon too, she spat in Pierre's face. I've not sipped tea at half so many constellations, but I've sipped at a good few. But that was never my dream. I'm not an explorer. I just wanted to put people back together again. There they stood. The doctor and Martha clasped together, embracing the monster, and with a dull crump, the sound of a footfall in heavy snow, time unfroze, flung backwards, and the wounded sky burst like a berry. And one day, Martha did visit the North Pole. We never did get there, did we? asked the doctor. What with everything else going on? Well, soon fix that. He set the controls gave the pump a particularly vigorous workout, and a minute later he opened the doors. <sighs> bit parky out there, he said. Won't stay for long. Martha stepped out into the snow. She hugged herself against the cold. She looked at the white, stretching out in all directions. It's just a place, she said at last. Just a place, the doctor agreed. Sometimes the destination isn't half as interesting as the ambition to get there. He pointed at where she'd left footprints. Look at that. It's 1890. Well, give or take a year or two. You're the first person to have stood at the North Pole. Martha Jones, pioneer. She laughed. Come on, he said. And before they left, he smeared away their prints carefully. I don't want to spoil it for anyone else. Let's go and get something to warm us up. He took the TARDIS to exactly the same place, a mere 200 years later. The North Pole Experience was an interactive museum, with exhibits that the children could play with, and a gift shop filled with I've Been to the North Pole t-shirts and clockwork penguins. Still don't have penguins in the Arctic, said the doctor. He bought them both overpriced coffees in the cafe, found them a nice table in the observation lounge, and they looked out the plastic windows at what had been the most isolated place in the world. And he told her, what he dreamed. How, on his planet, the maps never said, here be dragons, because his people had explored the universe. They'd been everywhere and every when. At one moment, there they'd been, charting the stars, and the next, it was all over. That was time travel for you. 
When he'd been a child, the doctor had wanted to be an explorer, but there was no way left to discover. They told him he shouldn't leave home. What was the point? But he'd found a point. He'd found a point. And whenever he forgot it, he'd close his eyes. He'd dream again. And there it would be. Pierre Bruyere never got to visit the North Pole, of course. When he was six years old, he complained to his parents, "I never dream of anything. When I sleep, nothing happens." Everybody else dreamed. What was wrong with him? His parents took him to a doctor. "Dreams are a nuisance," he was told gruffly. "You're better off without them." Privately, the doctor was annoyed that he'd been bothered by something so trivial. He's the son of a baker, he told himself. What great things was he ever going to dream about? So Pierre worked in his parents' shop. He never smiled. Put a bit of love into it, his mother advised him gently. That's what I do. But Pierre couldn't see what there was to love about croissants and baguettes and Belgian buns that would never even see Belgium. They'd never explore as far as even that. One day, Pierre made a pastry. He sprinkled on the icing sugar. He looked it over.、Mm, needs more sugar, he said to himself. He poured on another layer, then another. The little flecks of white covered the bread, covered the counter. His hands were speckled with white. After he'd used three entire bags of icing sugar and drowned the pastry completely, he wondered why he'd done that. But that night, he began to dream again—just flashes of white, little glimpses of it, and what he could be. And he began to smile at work, to look forward to the rest at day's end. Once in a while, he'd feel inspired to cover pastry so thick with cream that you'd think it had been snowing. And sometimes, he'd make buns in the shape of balloons, so light and fluffy, you could almost have sworn. They could rise up to float in the air. Doctor Who: The Story of Martha, The Frozen Wastes by Robert Sheerman, was read by Freema Ajman. It was produced by Kate Thomas and is published by BBC Audiobooks. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.